and welcome to Skeptically Curious. I'm your host, Ryan Rutherford. This is a podcast where I endeavor to know more and think better by talking to knowledgeable guests about fascinating topics. So please join me on this journey of exploration and edification. For this episode, I was very pleased to be once again joined by Roman Yampolsky. Our first interview was posted as episode 11, and thanks to his promotional efforts, it received a great response. Dr. Yampolsky is professor in the Department of Computer Engineering and Computer Science at the Speed School of Engineering at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, and has authored dozens of peer-reviewed academic papers and some books. In this discussion, I first asked my guest about the recent AGI 21 conference organized by Ben Goertzel's Singularity Net, to which he remotely contributed. The conference was held in San Francisco from the 15th to the 18th October, and for those interested, I believe all the presentations are available on YouTube. Roman summarized his presentation on AI controllability, an incredibly important topic from an AI risk standpoint, but one, as you will hear, that has not received nearly enough attention. The conference provided a neat segue into the topic comprising the bulk of our discussion, namely AGI, or Artificial General Intelligence. I threw plenty at my interviewee, primarily perspectives gleaned from some papers and books, as well as interviews to which I was recently exposed. However, Roman parried most of my challenging solvos with impressive aplomb. I then shifted focus to some provocative possible scenarios, both positive and negative, involving AI systems gaining greater intelligence and competency. Lastly, we ventured onto more personal terrain as I asked Roman about his family's move to the United States, his interest in computers, intellectual influences, and what the secret is to his astonishing productivity. Similarly to our first conversation, I was left much more enlightened afterwards and inspired to explore many other topics. With any luck, Roman might return for another interview, so watch this space. Just a short note on something we discussed in passing during the interview. After my guest referred to a paper of his laying out a scenario in which everyone has a virtual universe to traverse by themselves, I mentioned that this goes well beyond Mormon eschatology supposedly guaranteeing believers their own planet. Shortly after our discussion, Roman sent me a link to an article quoting Mormon theologians casting doubt on whether the Book of Mormon does indeed proffer a planetary reward in the afterlife for the faithful, as popular conceptions suggest. Not being a Mormon, I will readily defer to those with greater familiarity on the subject. I also have little doubt that many AI researchers and those far better versed in computing will take issue with at least some, if not many, of my notions and attempted explanations. A helpful adage in this regard is to not judge someone by their errors, but rather their willingness to rectify them. I therefore invite all those with superior knowledge of AI, or indeed any subject we covered in the episode, to point out any inadvertent mistakes. Lastly, in the spirit of obligatory, if still necessary, repetition, please remember to rate, review, and generally spread the word in any way you can about Skeptically Curious. The podcast has a Patreon page via which donations can be made, and a Twitter account, with links to both provided in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Now, without further ado, I give you my second interview with Roman Yampolsky. So welcome back to Skeptically Curious, Dr. Roman Yampolsky. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, thank you so much for making time in your incredibly hectic, busy schedule or schedule to join me for a follow-up, a return to the lion's den, as it were. And I think that this conversation will be something of a sequel and a remake, if you will, similar to Robert Rodriguez when he made that very low-budget uh, Mexican film El Mariachi and then kind of remade it, but also was a sort of a sequel with Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek. He got a bigger budget in 1995. Now, 
know, that's a ridiculous reference that very few people will pick up anymore. But just because I want us to delve a bit into after re-listening to the interview that we did our first part, I thought there were some issues that maybe need clarification or further delving into, but we'll expand upon. We'll go beyond it, of course, just to keep things interesting. Many topics to potentially discuss. But how about we start with, I believe, the most recent conference you attended, which was organized by Singularity Net, which I believe is founded by one of the luminaries in the field of AI or AGI, Ben Goertzel. So Singularity Net, this is the AGI 21 conference. So maybe you can first tell us a little bit about that before we move on to your presentation that you delivered. Yeah, it's an annual conference, uh, one of the first to specifically target general AI. Sadly, I wasn't attending. I was virtually presenting, but uh, I wasn't able to make it to San Francisco this year. And last year, it was in Russia. And likewise, they had to cancel. So two disappointments in a row. Oh, no, sorry to hear that. Oh, I see. I saw that it was listed as taking place in the Bay Area. So there was actually a physical conference and then but other people delivered their presentations virtually. All right. So well, what is Singularity Net? I mean, I know that you're not necessarily the founder there, but what is this organization? Maybe say something about Ben Goertzel for those who might not know who he is. So Ben Gersel was an academic professor, but he decided to work outside of academia and has been very successful. He's probably better at answering questions about singularity than that. My understanding is they are combining AGI research with blockchain technology. They had some successful fundraising rounds with initial coin offerings and been developing it ever since. There is also AGI Society, which encourages and runs a lot of those events and conferences conferences. But that's really all I know. Again, invite Ben. He's a great guy. Yes. In preparation for this interview, I listened to your interview on Voices in AI. And before that was Ben Goertzel to learn more about him. I've read about him. I never actually listened to much of what he has to say, which I should definitely rectify. Seems like an interesting fellow who's now based in Hong Kong. Now, just out of interest, before we move to the specifics of your presentation, which I watched yesterday on the tube that is supposed to belong to you, I was wondering, were there any skeptics, shall we say, or dissenters from the position that AGI will ever be achievable, let's say, at this conference, or was it a conference of true believers, as it were? So I have no idea what people attending it think. And honestly, I didn't listen to much of other speakers. I found 20 minutes to join them for a two-hour Q&A. That was the extent of my participation. My guess is there is probably people who are less or more believers mm -hmm. into the God of AGI, uh, <laughs> but uh, sort of due to the nature of the conference, it's more likely that it attracts people who want to invest their time in this topic. Usually people who don't believe in something don't spend much time on it. I don't go to flat earth conferences just to see what's new and debunk them. It, it seems like a waste of my valuable time. And I would assume that uh, if you felt the same way about AGI, you wouldn't be engaging. That's a very good point. And because you weren't at the physical conference, it would have been a bit more difficult. So you did attend it virtually. I did try to not actually watch just to see the headings of some of the other presentations, but none of them seemed to be challenging the notion that they seem to be proposing ways to achieve it. So I should try to explore that for my own intellectual edification. Now onto your presentation, AI controllability. There were many fascinating aspects to it, I found, and in particular was how limited this field or, or limited attention, I should say, this field seems to generate. And you pointed out how it's either all but totally ignored or some of the major figures seem to think that it's solved. So why don't you lay out some of the key points of AI controllability, what it kind of means, and just anything you think is relevant or germane to the topic? All right, just one more point on your previous question. I think it's year 14 of the AGI conference. So even if there was some dissent, I think by now they kind of ironed it out. So Oh, well, 12 years past hmm. that, it's not, uh, it's new for you, but most people uh, have been working on it for a while. So I gave a presentation surveying a number of papers I have recently published on different tools, which I hope we will develop and tools I think we need for being able to control AGI. And my results are mostly impossibility results, saying that we need this tool, but it's impossible to do it. And the paper I presented was a survey of what others have published or at least uh, blogs and 
forum comments on the subject. And it seems there is just not enough research in that area. People either say it's not a problem, skeptics, or they say, well, we need to solve this problem and start working on specific possible solutions. But I don't think there is any effort to show that it's solvable or impossible to solve or undecidable or anything else of that matter. So that was the presentation. And I think I, based on my research, arrived at a conclusion that control is not possible. But I'm very happy to hear from skeptics and skeptics who can successfully disprove my beliefs on that matter. Yeah, that does evoke certain frightening implications, as much of your work does, because if something that is highly capable, inscrutable, intelligent, and malevolent, a rather concerning blend of characteristics was then unleashed upon the world and you couldn't find any way to rein it in, we would have something of the sci-fi scenario, the worst case potential dystopia there. So, but why is something like AI controllability, which seems vital on the face of it, particularly the way you you articulated and in presentation something that receives so little attention and then also seems so very intractable. I mean, I'm thinking, can't you just switch it off or maybe devise another system that could fight against it? This all seems rather silly and or pedestrian, so please uh, rectify my misconceptions. Right. So that's exactly what happens. People immediately start jumping to specific solutions, such as turning it off. And then people have to spend time explaining why that would not be sufficient. And there is now at least six papers we published on that problem alone, all saying, no, it's not enough. Uh, the system will not allow you to switch it off, will have side effects prior to switching and so on. But we need to, in principle, establish that the problem is solvable. It is standard approach in computer science before you start trying to find simplifications and heuristics for a complex problem, you need to show that it could be solved. And there are some problems which we know are not solvable even with more time, more compute. They just cannot be solved using any means. And then you have to either give up on it altogether or create a smaller, easier problem to address. And so we can look at this case and go, okay, so maybe we don't know how to control superintelligence systems. Can we control human-level intelligence? Is that possible? And if we look at uh, our attempts at controlling humans, whatever it's uh, ethics, morals, religions, legal codes, paying them, that also seems to fail. We don't have safe humans. Even humans who have been safe for a while sometimes turn on you, betray their companies, families, countries. And so if we can control something which is already very human, we understand pretty well, mm -hmm. definitely aligned with human values, it seems less likely that this much harder problem is likely to be solved. But this is intuitive. I wanted something with more mathematical rigor, something we can actually prove and establish. Okay, control means here's four definitions of control. For each one, to make this possible, I need to understand the system, predict the system, verify implementation, and so on. And for each one, we were able to show that you can't do that. It's just not something you can do using mathematics or computer science. Yes, it's the classic tricky or diabolical problem, much like the value alignment problem, which we discussed, which is also fundamental in this area that you've explored and certainly needs more attention, but doesn't admit of any easy solutions. Hence the constant hand rigging that you and others have to do or many others just ignore entirely, perhaps to our impending demise. Now, AGI, as I mentioned before, we started recording is a field or an area or a concept. I don't know even how to describe it or an hypothesis, maybe we can call it that, that I'm particularly interested in. And we touched upon it in our first discussion, but I'd like to do a bit of delving and in particular have some perspectives that have enriched my own understanding, admittedly on a contrary skeptical basis in just the last week, actually, through interviews and articles I've read and the beginning of a book. But before we get to this position, you made a point in the first interview we conducted that there's no good reason or none that you've heard that would preclude AGI. Now, hopefully we'll get to some of the arguments against it. But the way arguments should work is that you have to present the case of whether you believe in the Judeo-Christian God or fairies or demons, you know, the onus is on the person making the claim to present the evidence or a reason why it could logically exist, for example. So let me ask you, what are or what convinces you and you can be as technical and detailed as you'd like that AGI is possible in principle 
principle. So that's an important point. But of course, there's the technical aspect. Now, that's maybe a bit more difficult because there actually has never been an AGI system yet. So answer that question in any way you want. But I would like to focus on the in principle and technical aspects. And yeah, I guess maybe relatedly, what gives you confidence? Maybe that was already included in the question I asked you that AGI is possible. Right. So there is a small difference between human intelligence and AGI, but it's not an important one for your question. Yes. So so sorry, I guess maybe I should have, sorry about this, that when we talk about AGI, you can maybe also clarify the concept because I know there's some contention here. Are we speaking about something that is human level intelligent or just a greater degree of generality? So maybe you can, yeah, sorry, disentangle those as well for us. So for the purposes of your question, I think you would be satisfied if we created human equivalent mm. intelligence. And the proof is by existence. We have humans. You are an example of such intelligence. Mm. So given infinite time, I can definitely make a copy of you. Now, all the questions are, can we do it in five years? Can we do it in 10 years? Can we do it using only Van Neumann architecture? But I have an example of a general intelligence in front of you. So, ta-da! Oh, I see. Okay. So so that, that was cleverly and very succinctly done that because we have this N of one of a general intelligence, why could there not in theory be an N of two in this particular category? I mean, is that to sum up your position? Well, it's N of eight billion and you want one more. <laughs> that just happens to be silicon. Okay. Now, maybe this is a, a difficult one for you to answer. What about the critiques that AGI in our current modality, let's say, and I'm going to refer to that paper I did link you to about artificial neural networks, which seems to be the best candidate because of the way that it's modeled, at least in part in a functionless basis, which is an important premise that we shouldn't elide or ignore that with our current technical trajectory, let's say, or development of AI systems that we're going to get there. What's the strongest argument that you've encountered either in principle or technical, and sometimes maybe these collapse into each other with something like ANN, that it isn't possible. I assume you don't find them convincing, but what is, let's say, if I were playing devil's advocate, what is the strongest argument against your position? Uh, the strongest arguments I heard uh, require non-material properties of human brain. So there is a mind, there is a soul, which is separate from the brain. Brain is just a receiver, if you will. It's not the actual conscious entity. And then material approach to building computers would not work. So you have to believe in souls in order to object to HEI being possible, in my opinion. I see. Okay, so that's coming to us from the theological end of this debate. All right. Now, okay, so far as AGI, I mean, and consciousness, of course, comes to the fore, but I'd like us to bracket that and maybe talk about that in more detail later, because I know that's an area of fascination and intrigue. And you've written that paper that we discussed in the first interview that I thought was particularly illuminating and intriguing, which we didn't dig into sufficiently, actually, I I thought. But so I don't know if you know the work of the philosopher and also computer scientist. He studied that first, I believe, and then got a PhD in philosophy. Bernardo Kastrup, he's a Dutch thinker. I recently heard an interview of his with Michael Shermer. Now, his idealist philosophy, I don't agree with. I must just state that there. But early on in the interview, he was talking about that if we model something on a computer, like let's say, I think his example was the kidney. But you can use the weather, you know, where there are weather models that no one's going to get wet, let's say, with modeling the rain that is projected to arrive. The same with a kidney, you know, no one's going to actually, there's not going to be no urine that anyone's supposed to on the machine. So he says, why is it with consciousness? But I'm going to also say with, let's say, something like the human brain, that we think that that which is being simulated is equivalent to the simulation. He says consciousness is unique in that. And he called that idea absurd. So I don't know if this necessarily intersects with any of your beliefs and views, but it does seem to be an underlying premise in some of the idea about why AGI is possible in principle. It goes also to this idea of substrate independence, which I think is another problematic idea because it presupposes mind-body dualism. But anyway, I'll let you address that. What, what do you think of this, that we put too much onus on the simulation, which is, it is just that. But in any other area, we just recognize that a tornado on a computer is not actually a real tornado. So I never met him, but I read his book. The example you give is just a logical mistake. Every single avatar in that simulation of rain is getting wet. Everybody using that kidney in that simulation of kidney is doing whatever processing of urine or whatever kidneys do. 
you are confusing being in the simulation subject to the effects versus not being a part of it. The moment you are, it works. So intelligent beings in games make intelligent decisions about those environments. They can win, they can invest, they can do exactly what intelligent beings do. Saying that, okay, this game character is not affecting real stock market, you're just confusing the environment for the agent. Okay, yeah, that seems to be a fair point. Uh, maybe I'll get him on the show and, and put that to him as I also challenge his idealism in the philosophical sense, to be clear. All right, so if some figures I, I respect greatly, including Lawrence Krauss, the physicist, Sean Carroll and Sam Harris, who all have very good podcasts that I enjoy listening to. Now, all three of those gentlemen are atheists and staunch materialists. They are definitely naturalists or monists. They don't believe in any kind of ghost in machine or soul. Yet all three of them have at various times I've heard seem to be in your camp, which I think you are on this notion of substrate independence, that consciousness can be simulated on and human consciousness in particular on a computer. Now, I have a problem there because as soon as you make that move, so you talk about substrate independence, you are a mind-body dualist because I see consciousness, correct me if I'm wrong here, as a totally natural phenomenon. In other words, the consciousness that I have or you have or an aardvark has or a cricket has, as diverse as those are, are instantiations of or products of or inextricably bound up with their particular neural architecture. In other words, it's about their nervous system. So something that has a different nervous system has a different consciousness. So I fail to understand how a silicon-based system, even if it had, let's say, the same number of neurons, and that's a bit of a different issue, which we'll get to, can simulate the same consciousness because if you believe that, then you're moving into mind-body dualism. So again, maybe I am laboring under various misconceptions, but what do you have to say to this objection? So there is a lot of things we can concentrate on in this. Uh, let's try a simple replacement experiment. So we replace one neuron in your brain with an artificial neuron. Is the same consciousness still present or is this now something else? Assuming you would agree that it's still you, we'll do a second one. Mm -hmm. At some point, either we replaced all of them and you are still you, so substrate independence is confirmed, or one neuron will magically turn you into a bat or something else with different consciousness. I think that's a thought experiment that seems to do a lot of work. I would think, though, and the article I linked you to highlights how very different artificial neurons are to real ones. So I do feel that at a certain point, I would probably die. And the thing that emerges in my place would be maybe Siri-like, a more advanced Siri. I don't think it will be uh, will be me, but I'm being a bit facetious here. But I do appreciate that as a way to think about this and clarify what you mean. So let's move to this. I don't know if you had time to read it. I, I don't suppose you did. Oh, so uh, I didn't yes. actually read it, but I speed hmm. read it. And I think the argument is that uh, biology is way more complex than we know, or we're discovering it's way more complex. And so a single biological neuron is like, uh, I don't know, a thousand artificial hmm. neurons in complexity, but that's not relevant for intelligence. A bird is a thousand times more complex than an airplane. Airplane is a superior flying machine. Artificial neural networks are superior thinking machines. They're much faster. We get better performance out of them. Yeah, they're absolutely not as complex as biological brains. That's not an issue for us. We, we're trying to optimize for capability in solving problems, not for similarity to biological systems. Okay, that's, again, a good point. But however, just to keep it within the bounds that I kind of want to keep it, because you did a, a bit of a shift there, is that in particular in Albert uh, Romero's article, let me just get the title, which I will link to, Here's Why We May Need to Rethink Artificial Neural Networks. So AGI in this context that I'm using it, so just to be clear, because there would be other definitions, but the way I'm using AGI, not to keep saying it, it's human level intelligence. So in other words, something like a human brain. So you're quite right. You could have the superintelligence that's just nothing like us. But the real question is, are we getting to an AGI that's human-like? And if we are using the principles of artificial neural networks, that won't get us there. And so let me just lay out his argument here. Just summarize a bit. This might, just to be clear, I would urge everyone to read it. So he goes all the way back to the McCulloch-Pitts paper, the famous 1943 one, which of course, you know, everyone in AI must surely know. It. And that's basically under 
undergirded how artificial neural networks work. There's slight complexities. He mentions this as well. They've progressed a bit, but basically the idea is that for those who don't know, you know, there's these inputs and then there's a threshold that is reached. And if there's a, a positive, then there's an output. If, if it's negative, if these summed inputs are negative, then there isn't. And it's based on the principle of logic gating. And so this is the means essentially by which all these amazing neural networks are doing what it is they do. And often this is why there's that inscrutability that you've mentioned, you know, this difficulty of understanding. But as he points out, going back to, let's say, 1982 with Christoph Koch, who's quite a big figure in neuroscience, his paper showing that neurons don't quite work in this way. And then more recent work has shown that actually dendrites also have spiking. That's the electrical signals, not just the neurons. And then what you've just mentioned, this very recent paper, only from, I think, maybe a few months ago, because, yeah, maybe early September or August shows, they actually try to compare how many neural networks would match up to a biological one. And on an average, it's about a thousand artificial ones to one biological one. And then a very important point, which I think is worth reading. So he points out that AI and neuroscience have diverged greatly because with AGI, if you're talking about the human brain, and hopefully you will agree with this, you do need to employ or at least think about trying to understand those who study the brain for a living neuroscience. This isn't just a technical engineering point. If you're talking about anything to do with the human brain, neuroscientists, their perspective needs to be taken into consideration. And he basically says that AI community has diverged too much from the neuroscience community. Let me just quickly find this. So from the very early days, neuroscience and AI parted ways. Although both fields are trying to answer tightly related questions, neuroscience is concerned with intelligence, the brain and the mind. So neuroscientists decided to look inwards to the only instance of intelligence we know of, us. In contrast, AI is concerned with replicating intelligence using artificial means. They care about designing and building intelligent agents that can perceive the world and act on it accordingly. And then near the end, he says, neuroscience keeps reviewing time again its foundations, but artificial intelligence has chosen another way. They made the assumptions and went forward without looking back once. So I guess I'm just laying a lot on you there. I do apologize, but I wanted to be fair to Mr. Romero's piece, which I found very convincing, is that the current model, so the ANN models, Official neural networks are not going to get us to AGI, at least if we mean brain-like functioning. So to that, what do you say, Dr. Roman Iampolsky? So I think it's a good time to bring in the differences between human and AGI intelligence. I have a paper which is called AGI not equals human-level intelligence. Oh, is that a new and paper? It's about a year, I think, at this point. Yeah, okay, I must, I must check that out. It's recently been published under a slightly different title. I'll definitely share it with you. Please. But the main difference is that humans are not general intelligences. We are very restricted in the domain of human interest, human performance. Anytime you find yourself outside of that domain, you are pretty much helpless and need computers to solve those problems for you. AGI will be capable of solving any such problems. So if we build an AGI, it will not be human-like. It will be very different from human intelligence, the way multiplication is different from addition. But you can use both tools to solve same problems. And we have papers about artificial stupidity, where we on purpose dumb down AGIs to make them feel and look human. So you can go, ah, it's just like me. That's possible, but it's a step down. If we can make AGI, making human-level equivalent system is a simplification, not a more difficult problem. So even if they find additional complexities in biology, that doesn't change anything. A, we can implement them in our artificial neural networks if they're relevant. And it looks like they are not relevant because performance of today's artificial neural networks in domains where they are used exceeds performance of humans. I can start listing all the domains where AI is now dominating. So I'm not sure what the argument uh, is uh, based on. We will never make progress with those techniques, yet progress is exponential. Yeah, but this goes to, well, you said we're not a general intelligence, but earlier you said we are. So I know that we are also more specialized, but we are very general in the way that no machine is yet. So to give humans their due, we certainly are a general intelligence because you have this mismatch between these extremely competent, narrow AI systems that are actually super intelligences, to use that term, and yet they can't do the most basic thing that a three-year-old can do. So I guess your point is, if we just get away from from AGI equals human, if those two terms are coterminous or consonant, that AGI equals human, we shouldn't get hung up on that because I think that's really his point to be fair to this particular article. 
The difference is not important for developing very, very capable machines. If that's our goal and then safety is a concern, it's irrelevant whatever it's human level or truly general. It's unfair for me to confuse you with the terms you haven't read the paper. Humans are general intelligences in the domain of human expertise three-dimensional worlds, social interaction with other humans, and so on. We have almost no generality outside of it. You don't speak dog languages, do you? Uh, Why not? It's an inferior agent. You should easily pick up communication from dogs and mice and whatnot. But it's an example of something we're trivially incapable of learning, whereas an AGI would be able to do that. That's the difference. And I provide examples of what AGI is already capable of doing, which to humans sounds like magic. And which AGIs are those, just to be clear? So just modern neural networks, which we have used to solve specific problems. They are not general in a universal generality sense yet, but we are getting closer to that performance. Same neural networks can now learn, you know, 20, 30 different games, domains, and that number keeps increasing. All right, but aren't we hearing what Gary Marcus, I know, who's been a critic as well of, well, the idea of an AGI and some of the, I suppose, more extreme scenarios, shall we say, but he's been a critic of AI research in general. You know, he talks about games being closed and language. I know GPT-3 has caused that into some question as well, that we're talking about all these closed systems that these machines can do well at, but more open-ended ones, like actually navigating the world, which is really some kind of generality still beyond them. And well, what do you say? to this idea that, okay, it can learn 30 games. So it's more general, but it's still learning 30 games. It's not also learning Swahili and learning to dance and, and pet a dog and, you know, play with children. Use some silly examples. Right. But you can make exactly the same argument about humans. I don't speak Swahili. I don't play the guitar. I have no idea how to make a car. I have zero generality in even human society domains. Yeah, okay, I suppose that's sort of turning the question around on us, you know, how general are we really? Now, what about someone's work who I'm sure you know about, because he's definitely an expert. I know that you had some issues with non-experts weighing in on this in your AI risk skepticism, although I would argue that before we actually have a human like AGI, then no one's really an expert, like with time travel, unless you build a time machine, you know, I'm as much of an expert as the janitor at MIT, to use again, rather absurd examples. But okay, setting this aside, Steve Schwartz, I'm sure you know him. He started reading his book, which I have on Kindle, which is Evil Robots, Killer Computers and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity. So he seems completely against it. So I think, sorry, this is a bit amateurish of me. I do apologize. But because it's a Kindle book, I had to take photos of it. So if I can read some of his words, so which goes almost completely contrary to yours. So hence, in good adversarial neural network vein, I would like you to respond once I've read a few of these passages. Now, again, I've not read the whole book full disclosure, I'm only at 7%, whatever that means in the Kindle world, so please. Okay, so AI systems, this is now Stephen Schwartz, by the way, not me, are never going to become intelligent enough to have the ability to exterminate us or turn us into pets. So I gave a collective sigh of relief when I heard that because last time, Roman, you terrified me. I must say I've had nightmares ever since. That said, there are many real and critical social issues. That was a fist bump for those who are listening on audio. Critical social issues caused by AI. That are, okay, so he does concede those. All right. Sorry, a little bit more here. AGI systems share in common with humans the ability to reason, to process visual, auditory and other input, to use it to adapt to their environments in a wide variety of settings. These systems are as knowledgeable and communicative as humans about a wide range of human events and topics. They're also complete fiction, so basically will never happen. And some of his big arguments are, first, each of today's AI systems can perform only one narrowly defined task. Second, today's AI systems have little or no common sense, knowledge of the world, and therefore cannot reason based on that knowledge. Now, a few people have made that point. Eric J. Larson, in his book, The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, makes a big point about machine learning is predicated on inductive learning, whereas this idea of abduction, you know, the American philosopher Charles Sanders Pierce, that's how humans reason, so we have common sense. Hubert Dreyfus was also about tacit knowledge. You probably know about him from the early 70s. He was one of the first skeptics, what computers can't do. A great paper I read, which I'm not going to summarize because I'm already speaking too much, why general artificial intelligence will not be realized by a guy called Ragnar Feiland. I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, so what sayeth you, Roman? It does sound like all these books have been written in 1970s and they never heard about any progress since. Computers will never beat us at chess. Chess is the ultimate prize. Yeah, nothing changed. They're still making those silly arguments. So why is it not going to happen? We already have computers doing all the things he mentioned.
Well, Stephen Schwartz, to be fair, published that book in February 2021. So, and he is. So that's embarrassing who... for Stephen Schwartz. I never met the guy, and mm. I don't think I'm going to invest my time in reading this. But what universe is he living in? Well, I mean, he was actually on a podcast. I listened to two interviews that you were on artificial intelligence and you and he's considered a, a major figure. I mean, he, he's been doing supervised learning since the 70s. So he definitely has credibility. He's 70s. made money. There it goes again since the 70s. They, they never update. They stay in that decade and they love it there. Again, we have computers today, mm -hmm. which drive cars, invest in stock market, defeat humans in intellectual games, write articles. What is it? I need one example of something, not a complex entity, but a simple thing a computer will never do. Then I can address that. He says computers will never do anything. At that point, I just go, what is that uh, tic-tac guy who just kind of spreads his hands and goes, eh? <laughs> Okay, but to be fair there, everything you've just mentioned, he could just come back at you. Now, I'm not going to put words in Schwartz's mouth here, but that they're all narrow AI. So, okay, well, let's get a little bit concrete here. And uh, now, you know, obviously, because you're an expert in this, a lot more of the field, you're clearly more up to date on knowledge, even beyond Stephen Schwartz. So once again, I've gone from being comforted to being discomforted. Thanks a lot for that. So, and this was in that amazing paper, but maybe after you've read it, you will come back to me and say it's not amazing at all, but I thought it was good. But he goes through some of them landmarks. So IBM's Deep Blue, IBM's Watson, and then AlphaGo. Now we could add AlphaZero to that. So all of those systems were landmark rated. Like you said, people used to say computers can't play checkers and they beat checkers of chess, Go, etc. Now there's AlphaStar, there's even AlphaFold. So protein folding has been a, a very wicked problem in biology and uh, DeepMind can now figure out how to do that. Now, one could look at that and say, wow, we're, we're making this sequential progress. But someone else would come along and say, that's all fine and well what Watson's doing what Deep Blue is doing, what AlphaGo, AlphaZero, but there's no synergy and they're not coming together to do all of those things. And yet, can you tell any robot today, to use Stuart Russell's example, go and make me coffee? I think you do underestimate how much of our knowledge is tacit, is commonsensical. This is Stephen Schwartz's big point. You have to tell computers just about everything. Where's the common sense? So what would you say to something like this kind of objection? Right. So I think you brought in a lot of different parts. And yes, sorry. We need to address them individually mm. because otherwise it's just everything, nothing. Computers <laughs> can do nothing or everything. Yeah. So the coffee bringing example is hard because it's robotics. It's not intelligence. You need to make a body. It's a separate problem and uh, progress is great, but this is beyond the question we're trying to answer. If you created a simulation of a house and had modern AI in that house, it would make you coffee. It could totally learn to make you coffee from zero knowledge, from you tutoring how to do it, from watching a video of someone else making coffee. We know how to do this. This is done. This actually okay, has now been... Making it in my house with hardware is a different problem. Mm -hmm. I cannot solve all the problems you mentioned. You can say I'm a very narrow human. I only write research papers. I don't produce music. I don't have a podcast. I don't ski. You can name a thousand things I'm incapable of doing. Are you arguing that I'm not general in a human intelligence general sort of way? No, you can't argue like that. But can you find one example of something no computer can do? I can find examples of something computers can do, but no human can. AlphaFold is a great example. Mm -hmm. Computers know how to predict protein folding. Humans can't. They are general intelligences. We are narrow intelligences in general, but general in a narrow domain of human expertise. So again, either the arguments are that computers cannot do something we know they can do already, or it's just not an interesting problem. So coffee making is not a big budget thing. Nobody's making $10,000 robots for making my coffee. And so they are not solved because there is no funding. If you provide interest in that problem, we can do it. We do develop much better human-like bodies, which at some point will be home robots, I'm sure. The argument can be easily made that we're not going to have it in five years or seven years or 10 years. And I would respect that. But to say that you will never do X, you have to give me a specific X. Never is a very long time. Hmm. So I'm very skeptical of people who say it's impossible to do something hmm. which humans do all the time.
No, sure, that was, I think, a fairly sound rebuttal or a fairly fair rebuttal. I'm hoping that Stephen Schwartz will respond to my email, but probably not. But uh, we'll see about that. Maybe now it's pointless because you've just destroyed his book. Maybe I should just stop uh, well, reading. I haven't read his book. I didn't destroy it. I destroyed your mm. summary of his book and maybe <laughs> you misunderstood it completely. But again, when they talk about myths, and that's the part of a skepticism paper, mm. then you start looking at the myths. Uh, no, that's simply myths from the 70s. Everything they said in the 70s was true at a time. Mm. But today we showed that it's no longer the case, but it's sometimes the same people. All right. So then I guess this I'm generally curious about because I guess I'm approaching this very much from the perspective of someone who doesn't think that because of my you know naturalistic inclinations that we'll be able to, let's say, simulate a brain properly. But that maybe could happen or that the, something like a human brain can emerge in silicon. But you're basically saying that that's not as interesting as this idea that we could have produce and indeed are, according to you, something that is incredibly general, more general than humans more intelligent humans, but isn't like us in core ways. So in a way, we could be hung up on, and maybe I am too hung up on this idea of, oh, it's not like a human, whereas that bar is probably too low and doesn't pay enough respect to these machines that are way more average, way more general than we are, and then also can be way more specialized. Am I getting that right? That sort of, we shouldn't get hung up on that because, you know, that can't just be the sole test for an AGI. I know you've written that paper that we can't just make AGI be synonymous with like a human. And of course, we could also, like you've also problematized, what do we mean even there? Because, you know, you have certain specializations, I have maybe some other skills, and yet we're both human, I would like to think. Right. From outside point of view, so aliens looking at our galaxy, uh, there is nothing special about humans. It's just another point on a continuum of intelligent agents, possible agents. For us, as producers and consumers of that technology, it's a very special point. We want robots to look like us. We want machines to speak like us. So there is a lot of interest in making it human-like. And that's where my artificial stupidity limitation comes in. We, we want to limit machines to where we can still interact with them, communicate with them, understand them, control them, hopefully. But in general, yeah, there is nothing interesting about it. If you can make a system which is 10,000 times smarter and you need it to problem solve, you'll go with that, not with something like an average human. Yeah, so I suppose I've brought these problems together that could be separated out. So, you know, for instance, Henry Markram with the Blue Brain Project promising in 2009 that we'd have a human brain simulated by 2020, and he was then fired from the Human Brain Project. There's a documentary now in Silica. So that to you doesn't in any way cast any kind of aspersions or obstacles on this idea of the generality of artificial intelligences is increasing all the time, that they resemble a European brain or not is irrelevant. Is that kind of the idea? No, I think with the example you're giving, it's a credit to human intelligence. He knew if he overpromises, he'll get a billion dollar grant and he delivered. <laughs> I respect intelligence. He was brilliant at what he was trying to do. Now, can he guarantee that at a certain point he'll build something no one ever built? No one can. I cannot predict what's going to happen next week. So nothing surprising happened there. And uh, can we get to that level of problem solving in a non-human architecture? It looks like we are. Okay, well, yeah, I would definitely be interested in, in reading that paper that you mentioned to help me again broaden my knowledge. I would also love to, and I don't quite know how to go about something like this, but I don't know, I have visions in my mind of a project called, this is a working title, the AGI Files, and uh, try to facilitate discussions with people like you and others just to explore the idea of AGI, maybe even have formal debates where I can just be a mediator and ride on other people's coattails, you know, become famous sort of by proxy, but I don't doubt that'll happen. Well, if you're serious about your interest in this, so the paper you mentioned, the skepticism paper, mm. it uh, reviews about a hundred, maybe a little more, maybe a little less papers from skeptics. But uh, the research I did resulted in about 400 such papers. I just don't have the time to address them. If you want to do the most definitive, comprehensive database of arguments, answers and Q&As, I invite you to collaborate with me on that paper. 
Yeah, I would love to do that, A, because of my interest and because of your stature, because I did read that paper with great interest and I love the references. It actually, there were so many ticks because, you know, I do this sometimes when I print out, I put ticks against all the books or articles I'd like to read. So, of course, you did take aim at some people I do have respect for, but that's all in good fun. You were also rebutting some of the very harsh things, which was quite funny to read, aimed at those like yourself who take risks serious. I was quite amazed at the kind of language that you quoted and you also had a funny ending about your desire to continue living as a human being and not be wiped out by machinery, which is a bit selfish of you, I would say. But That is a bias, but I never <laughs> lost my respect for anyone. I can criticize people's work mm. and I love and respect them. They're all amazing, general, intelligent human <laughs> beings. Yeah, thank you for that. And this is what this kind of podcast is about or any intellectual interchange. It must be conducted in good faith. I mean, I'm challenging you here, but in totally good faith. It's not like I want to undermine your position. I I guess I just want to sleep a bit better at night, which has been a problem of late, but I guess that's a long way off then. Then, okay, let's move a little bit, keeping on the topic somewhat, but moving more into express risk. So I should have asked you this last time. So the machines we've, or the systems we've mentioned, you know, Watson, Alpha Zero, Alpha Go, maybe even now Alpha Fold, Alpha Star, whatever alphas are, are on their way. The major ones, maybe even GPT-3 now is definitely seems to be the most impressively general system I think we've devised, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. So all of these systems, as you said, uh, have deflated a lot of human arrogance and hubris about the, you know, humans can't do X and then, well, the systems can do so many things, including games we've been playing for thousands of years that they can learn in, you know, a matter of a few hours and, and beat us. And, and we stay, as Sam Harris has said, we stay beaten. You're done forever. But I struggle to see a threat there. So I understand your point that these machines are getting exponentially more powerful and there's a bit of a Wild West atmosphere. There's not much regulation. Different companies are devising things. There's lack of transparency. Those issues that you have highlighted in print. But how is it that Watson, for example, goes from beating Kevin Jennings to being a risk to you or I or Alpha Zero teaching itself all these games? Because so far, there is no risk from any of these systems, so far as I can tell. So maybe you can elaborate upon for those who wonder, who think, okay, I don't want to say that you're promoting a Terminator or Matrix-style scenario. I want to take you seriously, but how exactly are these systems risks to us? Because they don't seem to be risky to us other than our egos. Right. And there are some posts and papers specifically outlining different ways it could become dangerous. Mm -hmm. Some are better than others. Others you have to read, uh, paperclip maximizers and things like that. But let's think about something we historically experienced. Uh, military is very interested in using AI for defense and offense purposes for intelligence. And we see that in games like poker, AI is superior to humans in bluffing and lying and deceiving and manipulating. And so, of course, it would be employed for defense systems. And quite quickly, it can figure out that uh, you might have a first strike advantage with a nuclear attack. It can figure out that it can have a red flag, uh, kind of false flag attack and uh, set up a nuclear third war, uh, world war. It can uh, have an incentive to protect certain territory or itself and realize that other humans have a greatest danger to it and fix that problem. All those are very likely scenarios if we don't do anything crazy with it, but we're doing lots of crazy things. If you use things like protein folding prediction for developing new drugs, for example, COVID is a problem right now, so let's create a vaccine, let AI design it. What parameters do you put in it? Prevent humans from dying. Okay, maybe side effect of that vaccine that will live forever. Maybe it's better if we live in non-human form. I mean, you'll be given a vaccine and a mandate to take it, right? That's the standard now. So that could be a very interesting development. I don't know what a super intelligent system will decide to do with my biology and how it will re-engineer it. Nobody knows. Even the people designing that system have no idea. I can keep going and it will be really interesting science fiction, but uh, nobody knows exactly how it will backfire. I do have a paper listing all the historical accidents we've seen yes, from very yeah. narrow, very dumb eyes, and you can see they get progressively more common have more impact. So just move it forward. If you have a system which controls world economy, here's how it can fail. If you have a system controlling military, here's what it can do. 
Uh, I see. Okay, I, I guess now we're in the realm of, well, partly human error in as much as maybe there's a coding glitch as well. I mean, some of those, surely that's part of yes. it. You've missed a semicolon or a, a, a dash. Yeah, or sure. Something. And skeptics always go, well, no, of course, we'll test it much better. We'll debug it. And then I have my trump card. I go, you know what? I'm going to be in charge of that system and I'm going to give it goals. And the goal is to exterminate all of you. And that confuses people a lot because at that point, they don't know what to do. <laughs> Yeah, so I somebody will do it on purpose. Same people who write computer viruses, crazy people, psychopaths, doomsday cults, they'll make it do what they never could done before, exterminate everyone. Well, yeah, as we discussed in the first interview, that remains your number one risk is malevolent AI designed by some of the same people that are currently hackers and doing other nefarious actions online, which is realistic because I think that's the plane we need to keep this on because otherwise, yeah, people do envision a Skynet style scenario or maybe an iRobot type idea. Military AI is not a crazy possibility. No. I mean, China, US all trying to weaponize AI, many others. Yes, that's true. But this, again, is part of the geopolitical antagonisms and the continuation of what I think is a very outdated way to organize society, the nation state. And so, yeah, so but these problems yeah, just magnified, as you point out, if people now have access to powerful AI systems. But then, OK, let's try to think about, well, I, I want to be a bit provocative as well, but let me first try and get practical here and, and ask you, what would you do if you had a lot more power to try to regulate some of this now? I know with military it's impossible but let's look more in the silicon valley or the tech industry where we assume people aren't really meaning ill though they are often employed by the cia as you know jeff bezos as amazon and peter Thiel, the libertarian who's employed to spy on people through you know palantir that seems to go against libertarian ethos but let's set that aside what do we do about you know people who are maybe developing this or even those expressly developing agi but it needn't be that what do you do how do we gain some purchase and traction on this problem that could as you have pointed out impact either all of humanity or certainly a big chunk thereof so that's what i've been trying to do with my time right i wanted to write a very convincing proof that the problem is not solvable you will not be in control money becomes irrelevant if you have malevolent superintelligence so really the best you can hope for is being the first victim that's all you're creating a problem you'll have to fix it and you'll fail and uh, whatever you're doing right now you're trying to gain money gain power that would be wiped out as well so it's in your best interest not to proceed and i hope to be very convincing and uh, i take it you probably haven't been but not necessarily through lack of trying so there is a lot of approaches to stopping others from working on superintelligence. One is to offer them a better job, pay them more for something else. That has been an attempt. Others have tried becoming investors in such companies and maybe having some control over direction the companies take. Those mostly backfired. I don't think there is a lot of good coming out of such investments. Can't say I'm winning yet, but uh, then again, I just published those two control papers a couple of months ago. Mm, and uh, I suppose someone should try and be the Cassandra, even if no one is paying attention, because at least you then can sleep easier at night or you should try to make the positive contribution. I just hope I have enough time to where I can say, see, I told you I'm right. See, they're killing all of you. I'm joking, joking, There's just joking. But yes, few... I need a few seconds to gloat. I was going to say, yeah, at least a few seconds and then, yeah, you'll be slaughtered. But kind of on that point, this is a very provocative, controversial, but you, you kind of brought it up. But I mean, you've accused, I remember uh, in the interview that I listened to yesterday, Voices in AI, which maybe you did a year or two ago now with Brian Reese, you accused him of having a bit of a pro-human bias. And I guess some of what I said may seem to place me in the same camp, but I, I'd like to think I'm in the pro-truth camp. But those of us who review the history of our species and its contemporary manifestation might conclude, you know, there are some issues with humanity and we can spend many, many hours enumerating them. So someone might ask, well, you know, Roman, you're trying to save us from the superintelligence, going to enslave us or wipe us out. But what if the superintelligence comes along and similar to the iRobot that I've evoked based on the Isaac Asimov story or novel, but which was made into the Will Smith film, that female voiced system actually made some good points in that end confrontation saying, look at what you're damaging the planet. I'm just trying to save the planet. So you have this scenario, this, this intelligence wipes us all out, restores the biosphere. And because it's more rational, as 
of our biases. It designs rockets that can go off into other galaxies, uh, other solar systems, meet other AI intelligences. And I know this is a bit of an Ian Banks culture evocation. And what's wrong with that? A better intelligence has one more ethical. Yes, it's made of silicon, whatever, but it is ethically superior to us, more brilliant. What do you say to that? What's the problem? As I said in my paper, I'm biased. I'm biased <laughs> for me. I want to live. I want to enjoy life. And I don't mm -hmm. care if someone else is better than me. If they offered me, you know, a better guy to come over and sleep with my wife, I wouldn't take that offer. It's a great offer. He is bigger. He is stronger. But I'm not interested. Hmm. Okay, I suppose that's a fair point. Okay, but now you've opened up another little avenue of self-interest. You mentioned two of them uh, rather humorously in the conclusion to the aforementioned AI risk of paper that you say you might have a bias as a safety researcher. And I know you're one of the foundational figures in this relatively new field. So people might listen to a lot of what you've said today and your papers, etc. And I, and I mean, this seems like I'm attacking your integrity. I'm not trying to do that, but trying to be a bit provocative here. I can sometimes be a satanic attorney would say, of course, you are exaggerating the doom and gloom because you've got skin in the game to quote Nassim Nicholas Taleb. So why should we listen to a guy who, although he's an academic at a public institution, you know, he wants us to be fearful because that's his bread and butter. He wants us to think of AI's malevolent as potentially evil, as a killer robot, as Matrix, etc., etc. Please excuse the exaggeration. I know that's what you're not really trying to do, but you get my general point. Well, I think it would get a lot more bread and butter out of benevolent superintelligence. You think I would so? definitely benefit a lot more from free labor, physical, cognitive, from curing every disease, life extension, unlimited virtual worlds with anything I want hmm. versus hell. Yeah. <laughs> But why be such a gloomonger? Why don't you sing the praises of the gloriousness that AI systems could potentially usher in? Like I said, a post-work world could take care of so many problems, could help us cure disease. It's already trying to identify better at, at identifying cancer. So why not have a positive message? Because I, I know it's a mixed bag because it's a tool. So for every drone, there's the radiologist that is now better at their job because the AI helps. So why not paint this wonderful picture of a utopia where we maybe even fuse with machines, we'll become cyborgs or transhumanists. I know maybe you're right. dipping in that field, so maybe I'm overly enthusiastic. I, and I'm, by the way, I'm a really pessimistic person. So this is insane me asking this question. But anyway, I'm trying to so be a good if you watch, If you actually watch my keynotes, I always have one slide. It's called mm -hmm. positive impact. And I talk about everything you just mentioned. One slide. I also have a, Come on. I also have a paper about personal universes. I don't know if you had a chance to read that one. No, I love the sound of that. Please do send yeah. that along. So the solution is to um, solution for the value alignment problem mm -hmm. with multiple agents is to give everyone a personal universe. You don't have to negotiate. You don't have to convince anyone else to agree with you. You get exactly what you want. Superintelligence is running the substrate. You can be the king. You can be slave. You can be whatever you want in your personal universe. So I see a tremendous, beautiful utopia for everyone. But to get there, you have to control the substrate. Same control problem remains. That, that, is, that's uh, so fascinating. Yes, yeah, sorry. Just to kind of conclude that uh, there is enough people who talk about how great it's going to be. There is not enough people who tell you, have you considered the side effects? If there is one, I think it's not too much. Ah, yes. All right. Clever. I see what you, you did there. I also couldn't help but notice, I'm not sure how much you know about Mormonism, but their eschatology, their idea of heaven assigns everybody their own planet. You've gone way bigger and better. Their Amateurs. Own universe. Amateurs. Single planet. Come on. You're going to live forever on one planet? <laughs> Losers. I, yeah. I have to read that. Yeah, well, what if it's yeah, what if it's that small planet from Little Prince? I know he got to travel around, but yeah, you you never know. It could be potluck with a planet, but a universe gives you space to breathe. I mean, you know, you get bored with your planet. You're right, amateurs there, but I love. I do have a backup option of trying other universes and skipping around and redesigning mm -hmm. them. So it's not a full commitment. You have options. Ah, oh, so now we into a personal string theoretical universe. There's hidden hidden layers within layers. Well, that's it's awesome. Universes yeah, that's all the way down. 
<laughs> I love it. That's that's my kind of an afterlife, and not to get too sidetracked here on these on these wonderful theological matters, but definitely more appealing than some afterlife scenarios that I'm not going to mention for fear of offending my family. But okay. So I have so many questions as always, and indeed your answers open up a few universes to continue the theme of questions. But maybe getting a little bit personal, if you don't mind, maybe to sort of bring us in for a soft landing. I know you have many many commitments and I don't want to impress too much on your time. So I believe you were born in Russia, right? So maybe you could answer a few questions in one, sort of what drew you to coming to America, computer science, and then risk in particular, although you've maybe kind of answered that. I just want to make a little bit more of your background and why you've gone the direction you have and uh, maybe even intellectual influences, but we can maybe have that as a separate question. I was born in Soviet Union in a part which is now Latvia, an independent mm-hmm. European country. I do speak Russian, so there is definite cultural connection. Uh, my parents moved, so I came here as a child and I grew up in US um, as American as apple pie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I always loved computers. Uh, they had many advantages over humans, so I majored in computer science. All, all degrees are computer mm-hmm. science and I never regretted it. Yeah, I noticed that seems to have been your, your back and you seem to get these degrees very quickly. That speaks to your either work ethic or brilliance or probably a combination of both. And you've won some teaching awards repeatedly. And so congratulations. As a, someone interested in computers, often what goes hand in hand is interested in science fiction. And so what kind of books did you read when you were younger? Or, or maybe you can talk about either mentors or just intellectual influence. Or some people can be a, a sure. mentor. Uh, I read a lot of science fiction classics. I like uh, Julius Verne was great. I read um, Harry Harrison. He has interesting mm-hmm. books about future. Uh, some Russian science fiction, uh, Soviet block. I mean, you, you can't see my office, but it's all pictures of role models and people who inspire me all around me. So, Give, give a couple I, of I, names. I, Throw a couple of names at us. So Alan Turing is always a big uh, name for me. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, nothing strange or unusual. I have Einstein, I have, you know, Feynman, I have people you would recognize. Wow, some of the greatest hits. You have Feynman, Einstein, some of the biggest names in science and indeed intellectual luminaries of the highest rank. And then, so what about your, if you don't mind me asking, your daily schedule? I know it probably shifts because you do produce a lot. So do you write every single day, including on the weekends? Do you ever take a day off? Is that an alien concept to Roman Yampolsky? Well, I do teach a lot. So unfortunately, I don't write every day. I have to prepare lectures and engage with students and grading. But I have a very big announcement. My year-long sabbatical just got approved. So my productivity will quadruple, I anticipate. Oh, my goodness. And when would that then start? Well, congratulations on that. Next year. So, well, I did want to ask you what you're working on, but I suppose you probably have some longer-term projects that you want to pursue during the sabbatical. I do, and they force you to write exactly what you're proposing. So there is a lot of work on additional impossibility results and some crazy papers I usually don't mention until they get published or people steal them. So, Well, hopefully it's positive theft in that it will further promulgate or promote the message of impending AI apocalypse. So we will hope that you double... I would like to be the messenger of doom. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you've deserved it. All your doom mongering over low these many years. Yeah, you deserve that accolade. Then I apologize for drilling into it, but I'm, I'm just interested in, you know, the kind of work ethic or how you approach your life. So with so much writing, but you also must read a lot to write your papers because they are heavily referenced, impressively referenced, I might add, and I can highly recommend them to everyone listening. What are you reading right now? Or should I maybe say, do you read almost entirely for your own research or do you also do reading on the side that's maybe more for pleasure and maybe what are you reading right now that's interesting well i'm very lucky in that my research is my pleasure so i'm always Mm. reading for pleasure but it's always research and uh, i also listen to audiobooks at very high speeds i learned to speed read so the article you send me i looked at for maybe a minute and i think i got 90 percent out of it whereas reading it would give me 95 but i'd spend 10 times as much time so there are tricks you use and a lot of times if i have a minute somewhere i'm waiting for doctor's appointment or something i'll just keep keep reading 
you must teach me that technique. I feel I'm too slow and inefficient reader. But then with the listening to an audio book, isn't that a bit difficult to follow? I mean, do you set it on 1.5 or two speed? Doesn't that make it a bit garble or you still kind of get the gist? It's hard when the kid in the back of your car starts screaming because then you have to filter him out while at the same time keeping up and taking <laughs> mental notes. It takes practice. I don't really do audiobooks. I'm more of a podcast and then uh, physical books kind of guy, rather old fashioned there. Now, is there anything that you'd like me to ask you that I didn't or maybe something you'd like to say or explore in the, the closing a few minutes here? No, you are exceptionally well prepared. I'm very happy with the way you conduct it. You think it's a bit adversarial, but I actually like someone who asks non-trivial questions. Everyone's always like, how do you get to be so smart and good looking? And I'm like, eh, you know, it's not that interesting. <laughs> sure, you get that a lot, particularly the good looking part. I mean, that's clearly the, uh, the forefront of your reputation, I but jest. I should have maybe added this a bit of a ride in the beginning. I mean, I'm an interested layman in this field at best, and my interests are more in, let's say, neuroscience, where I feel I'm more conversant, and there's an overlap. Of course, AI is just in interesting in general, but I can't claim to know as much as I do about neuroscience, but of course, not that I'm a neuroscientist. But I am trying to educate myself, so this is definitely why this interview or or our conversations now, our, our two conversations have been vital for my own intellectual growth, maturity and edification. So I do thank you for being willing to field some of these questions that I thought were going to be difficult for you, but you parried them with some aplomb. I must say that. So yeah, I was worried that it was going to be too adversarial, but the AGI files, yeah, that's definitely something too that we should think about and get more people. I might try to have, not with you necessarily, but maybe someone else and throw some of what you said at them and see them, because I, I think this is where you knowledge is generated, you know, often in this debate format. Adversarial might be too strong a term, but I'm sure you know that keeps us honest, engaged. But Roman, if there's nothing else, maybe you can just, for those who haven't stumbled upon this and don't listen to the first one, but maybe share some of the ways we can find out about your work and reach you on social media or on other platforms. Sure. If you Google my name, you'll definitely find my Twitter account, my Facebook account. I'm somewhat prolific in posting useless material and sometimes good research papers. Google Scholar is the best way to find my work. I have multiple books, but they're somewhat pricey. If you want the same information, just go to my Google Scholar account. You'll get all the papers for free. If you can't find something, email me. I'm happy to provide the paper. If you're looking to get into this field, I'm happy to advise or work with you. I have many collaborations, a lot with uh, junior people who are just starting in a field. As long as you are smart and interested, uh, we'll definitely get you published, get you into a good program or a good company. So I'm happy to help you help humanity. Your list of the people you collaborate with is often quite extensive. So I, I really love that about your interdisciplinary approach and trying to support people. But Dr. Yampolsky, thank you so much for giving once again generously of your time. I thought this was a phenomenal discussion. We could even do a third or a fourth one. But of course, I know that's well beyond your patience threshold, not to be confused with the McCulloch Pitts threshold there, logic gating. But you know, thank you so much. This has been great. Enjoyed it as ever always stimulating, always engaging, always interesting. And I'll be sure to link to your social media accounts and some of those papers. Please also send them in an email if you'd be so kind. So thank okay. you very, very much. I wish you a wonderful rest of your Friday and also weekend. Take it easy a little bit. At least try to take the 10 hours of writing down to maybe eight if you feel so inclined. You know, chill a bit with your children and wife, which you've hinted at you might have. Thank you. We'll do that. Thank you very much. Take care, Roman. Bye.